For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so now, Father, we turn to you and we ask that in this time you would send forth your word, that in this hour you would send forth your word through your holy scriptures and through um, the revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that through your word you would accomplish your purposes in our life, both as individuals and as the community that is the body of Christ. And so we ask all of this by your grace and by your mercy and through the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So um, we did just talk a little bit about the context, where we're coming from in this passage, that we're starting, um, we're looking now at a whole new chapter. We've been in chapter six for a while. Now we're entering chapter seven. And um, it's also a long chapter, as is chapter eight. And there's a lot of teaching in both of these chapters where Jesus is, Um, in different situations where he's teaching. And one of the great things is he goes back and forth. um, He answers questions or you'll see him teaching. And then there's a response from those who are hearing him. Um, And so with chapter seven and eight, one of the important things to know is um, where it's important to set it within its context geographically. Where is Jesus? Why is he there? What is he doing? And so um, before we look at that, let's just remember where was he just before this? We just talked about um, chapter 6, verses 60 through 71 that we were talking about before. Do you remember where in the land of Palestine that occurred? Remember, it it was all this teaching that Jesus was doing, following the feeding of the 5,000. Northern Sea of Galilee. Yeah, that's right. It was, it was right up north there by the Sea of Galilee in the land of Galilee, which was this region, if you remember, in the land of Palestine. Galilee is north and Judea is south. They're under the Roman Empire. Those two regions were separated and they were actually different jurisdictions with different governors. So one um, in the south, there was the governor Pilate who was in charge over that area. And in the north, in Galilee, it was Herod Antipas, who was Herod the Great's son. And his brother had been lord over over Judea, but he messed up and Rome said, you're out of here, we're giving our own governor. So instead of having a Jewish king that had strict allegiance to Rome, they had instead this um, Roman governor who was a foreigner ruling, ruling Judea. Um, So there's that difference in jurisdiction. There's also a difference in topography, which is mildly interesting, but it actually has a point, um, which is essentially that, um, you know, remember the desert that Jesus goes into is east of Jerusalem in Judea. That's where John the Baptist was baptizing people at the Jordan River. And uh, when you get into Galilee, Galilee is a very... um, is very rough terrain, lots of hills, lots of caves. Um, it's actually a place where it's kind of hard to get around, not not as many roads um, for larger groups of people to get through. And so one of the things to remember is that um, Jesus there is less public. Even though we hear about these crowds following him, he is 
away from the eyes of the religious leaders who are centered in Jerusalem. And so we see throughout the Gospels that it might just be, even though Jesus is from Galilee, it seems as though he goes back and forth to Jerusalem multiple times during his ministry, probably during his life. That's probably what he did his whole life. Um, and there's a reason for that that we'll get to in just a minute. Um, but So why does he spend time in Galilee? Yes, to gain Galilean disciples. Yes, to preach in his home place. But also, probably, to escape the notice of the Jewish leaders. And the reason why we know this is because when we look at John chapter 5, um, am I skipping ahead? I am skipping ahead a little bit. But when we look at John chapter 5, verse 18, we see that when Jesus was last in Jerusalem in chapter 5, um, so this is his third time that he goes to Jerusalem in chapter 7 that we see in John. He went in John chapter 2, remember, for the cleansing of the temple. He goes again in chapter 5, and there in chapter 5 he heals a man who is at the pool of Bethesda. Um, and this, um, this man is healed, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. And he gets into a lot of trouble with the religious authorities for this. So we see them saying, Jesus responds to them when they challenge him for healing on the Sabbath. Jesus says in 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. There was this belief that um, God the Father was the only one who worked on the Sabbath. And yes, we see in Genesis that on the seventh day God rested. But um, there was this understanding in Jewish thought that God, yes, God rested and set that as a pattern for human beings to rest on the seventh day from all work, but that God was still working somehow because the sun still rose on the seventh day. And the that different aspects of creation that didn't stop on that seventh day. So God must still be doing some kind of work to sustain human life on the seventh day. And that's what um, the Jewish, you know, Jewish thought recognized that. The rabbis throughout the years recognized and they, and they had all of these ways of saying, well, why does God still work on the seventh day? It's for us, for our benefit, but we're still not supposed to work on the seventh day. So essentially when Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working, do you see what that claim is? He is essentially saying, I'm equal with God. God can work on the seventh day, and so can I. Um, and then we see in 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So his last time in Jerusalem, people started to want to kill him because of what he was saying, what he was doing. Um, and so he, um, I do think that, yes, he was there for the festival, but he goes back to Galilee undercover. He's back in Galilee. Um, and now it's time for a feast in chapter 7. There is, um, we see that, um, well, first of all, we know all of these disciples, these Galilean disciples, left. So that must have been a low point for Jesus. Um, and yet he certainly knew it was going to happen. He knew that his teaching would um, cause people to leave him when they began to realize what kind of claims he was making about himself. But still, it couldn't have couldn't have felt good. <laughs> um, and so we see his brothers telling him to go down to the feast. Now, um, faithful Jews all throughout the diaspora, and the di diaspora, when I say the diaspora, I mean all of the Jewish people around the Mediterranean basin. 
Because once they went into exile, they went not just to Babylon in exile long, 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 long before Jesus' birth, but they also went to all of these other cities in the Mediterranean to see if they could make, make a living there for economic reasons. All the Jews in the diaspora around the Mediterranean basin, all of them um, and those in Galilee would all come to the temple. Uh, at least twice a year for two important feasts. It might have been once for a third feast too, and I'm not remembering and I couldn't find it in my research. But I know it's two feasts at least. One of them was Passover, and one of them was this other feast called the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And you find some discussion of it in Leviticus 23, uh, 42 through 43. I'll let you look at that on your own, but essentially... The Lord is telling them through this feast to celebrate and remember the time that they spent in the wilderness in um, after they were brought out of slavery in Egypt and the Lord had them in the wilderness preparing them to go into the promised land. And remember that as they were waiting to go into the promised land, they lived in tents in the desert. They, um, they had, God miraculously provided water, bread, and even meat for them in the wilderness. So in this festival, they were remembering God's miraculous provision in the desert um, and reliving it. They relived it by living for a whole week in these temporary shelters that they were supposed to make out of tree branches. So that's where the booths come into mind. They called them booths. They were like little tents, um, but not tents like we would think of them because they didn't have nylon, right? <laughs> so tents with... Um, with like, I think of little lean-tos with a bunch of palm branches and things like that. And um, so it was like they, they went camping for a week. And as they were camping, they remembered how, how grateful they were that they didn't have to camp the whole time, right? Isn't that what we do when we go camping? <laughs> I'm not a big fan of camping, I will tell you that. I like having running water. I like having a comfortable bed. I don't like sleeping on the ground. I like to be able to wash my hair. Camping helps me be thankful for the things that I have on a regular basis. <laughs> so in some ways, that was part of what this, this festival was meant to help them remember. Some themes, well, first of all, we're going to see Jesus at this festival for two chapters. He's there at least throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8. And this will be important at, you know, in the coming weeks as we study these chapters. So I want you to remember this and we'll, we'll revisit it and come back to it. And what, does, what is the significance? Because it, it tells us the significance of Jesus' words and actions within their context of the feast. The feast is very help, helpful for us to understand why Jesus was saying what he was saying at the time when he was saying it. And what the people who heard it for the first time would have thought based on what Jesus was saying. So that's all ahead of us. But right now, what we're looking at is, why does Jesus go to the feast? And there are some other themes. You can look at those on your own. Um, well, okay. I'm trying to follow my outline, which I don't do very well, but it will help more linear people than, than I, I think. So the themes within the Feast of Tabernacles, do you see that I have that there on the outline, of water, light, and dwelling are very important. If you were to read through all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8 on your own, you will see these themes recur. They'll come back, especially water and light in chapter 7 and 8. But all throughout John, the idea of Jesus dwelling with men and women 
is very important that in Jesus, God has once again come to dwell in the midst of his people. That is a very important idea all throughout scripture that it's called the Emmanuel principle in in the inns or, or whatever. When people scholar, talk about it in scholarly circles, you talk about the Emmanuel principle because Emmanuel means God with us. And we see throughout scripture that we start with God walking face to face with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And they sin and are no longer able to stand in God's presence unashamed. Remember, they then have to, um, are hiding. Um, and then um, from there, they're banished from God's presence because of their sin. Um, banished from the garden, banished from the place where God would walk with them side by side. And yet you could say that all of scripture, in one respect, if you look at this one theme throughout all of scripture, you could see that, um, you could see in a sense, you could make the argument that all of scripture is the story of God bringing men and women back into his presence. And you see this in his choosing of the people of Israel, choosing, well, first choosing Abraham, then choosing um, Jacob, then saying, you are my people. You'll live like this so that you can be in relationship with me. This will show who I am to the rest of the world if you live like this, because this is how I am. Be like me because I'm holy and drawing them back into relationship with him. And yet you see the failure of the people of Israel to live up to the law and to be in regular relationship with God. And all of that just proceeds, it provides the backdrop for the new covenant, right? It helps show just how um, how in need of a savior fallen human beings really are. And then you see that with Jesus now, um, not only does God bring us back into relationship with him, back into his holy presence, but he does it by going out to us where we are. He doesn't, um, he doesn't just try to bring us up to his level. He does, but the way he does it is by going to us and, um, and living in our midst. Um, and so we see this in John chapter 1, verse 14, which is a part of that beautiful prologue that John sets up. He gives us this privileged theological information before he starts telling us about the events in the life of Jesus. And in this privileged theological information that's also gloriously beautiful and poetic, right, he talks about how Jesus is pre-existent. In the beginning was the Word. He existed before all creation. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Those are the first couple of verses of John. And then looking down to verse 14, so if Jesus is the Word, and Jesus is the eternal Word who, who is God, um, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word for dwelt, Jesus, the Word came and dwelt among us. I think Andrew talked about this. Does anybody remember this? Do you remember? I don't, yeah, the, the, the word for it in the Greek is literally tented. The word tented among us. Um, the Lord and Eugene Peterson in his, um, in his message, which is his own personal translation of scripture, you see that he, he uses that colloquialism. God came and, um, and pitched a tent next to us. Just let, you know, sat down and dwelt near, near us, dwelt with us. And I think of that, I mean, whenever I think of that, I think of 
of human, like humanity, human beings being kind of like a rebellious teenager, I think, or even a preteen, rebellious preteen, you know, right as the hormones are hitting their system and everything starts exploding exponentially and there are fireworks with their parents and they never want to do anything that they need to do or that you want them to do. And so I kind of envision it being almost like like this relationship of God coming and tenting with us, dwelling with us, being as though um, out of out of frustration at the argument, which is spurred on by his own rebe- rebellion, this little teenage preteen boy decides he's he's gonna go um, sleep in the backyard tonight. He's gonna he's a Cub Scout and he's able to you know build a tent and he's gonna go build a tent, and sleep in the backyard as a form of half-hearted rebellion against God. He's not yet strong enough to really run away, but he's going to go in the backyard and sleep in his tent. And, and I just picture God being like a father who would go out to the backyard and sleep in the tent with the frustrated little boy. Like, okay, you're going to you're going to rebel against me. Well, you, good luck. You know, I'm going to co- I'm going to come I'm going to come to be where you are. I'm going to um, sleep in a tent with you. I'll sleep on the cold, hard ground with you because I love you and I would and I wish you wouldn't sleep in the backyard on a cold heart on the cold hard ground when you can come inside the house Um, but so I see that as you know an imperfect of course analogy for what God is doing in Jesus Christ by sending him to dwell with fallen human beings to become like one of us and essentially to take on our flesh to take on this imperfect and fallen tent so that he could then redeem us and bring us back to the glorious mansion of relationship with God the Father. That um, Jesus is willing and, and lovingly goes to be um, to dwell with us in this backyard pup tent. Um, okay, any questions about that before we move on to content, since I've already talked your ear off a little bit? Any thoughts you want to share? Any questions? I see no's, but it's okay if there's yes. Um, Well, moving on to the actual content of the passage. So we know that, um, okay, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Remember what we just talked about from chapter 5. He's in Galilee because it's safer. And he's in Galilee not because he's scared or because he's hiding, as time will tell and show, but rather for other reasons. And we'll look at that in just a minute as we keep reading. So the Feast of Booths was at hand, and the custom was for devout Jews. I started to say this, but I don't know if I finished it. The custom was for devout Jews to travel to Jerusalem on pilgrimage to be able to worship in the temple for these very important feasts. Especially the, especially the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of um, Passover. And you see that um, this um, pilgrimage happened. We see it happening elsewhere in Jesus' life. Certainly it happens during his ministry. But Luke in chapter 2, verses 43 through 46, talks about that time when Jesus was a, um, a young boy. Remember, and he was traveling with his parents for the feast. They came to Jerusalem he started to sit in the temple and was teaching even in the temple and they lost track of him. And they were, um, it was a whole day before they knew, they realized he wasn't there. And whenever I used to read this and think, what, what kind of parents are going to lose their kid for a whole day? 
going on a trip really far away and they don't even know whether their son is with them or not for a full day. It makes sense when you understand that these, um, they didn't just travel down from Galilee to Judea alone, the three of them. They traveled with all of their extended family, which was huge, and probably even their whole village. Anybody that could leave and go on pilgrimage was expected to go. So it was probably this huge caravan of people. And as with the huge caravan of people, the kids are always off doing something on their own, aren't they? And so it, was, it, it makes sense that it was probably a little while before they found Jesus, or found that Jesus wasn't actually with them. Um, so essentially what's going on here is that his brothers are telling him, you need to come down to this festival because if you want anybody to see that you are who you say you are, if you want anybody to see that you're the Messiah, you're going to have to do all these miracles in a really public place. Forget about this Galilean countryside where no one can see you. Come down to Jerusalem and do those miracles. Feed 5,000 people in the middle of the city. Don't go, um, don't stay where you are. So they say, um, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, which doesn't sound very positive, doesn't sound that they're sound like they're very jazzed that Jesus is actually doing all these miracles. They are his brothers, after all. Show yourself to the world for not. E- and then, so he's te- they're telling him, um, no one will follow you. All these disciples are falling away. You need to go down publicly and show yourself to the world. Um, and. Uh, and then Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And then this sounds, this sounds so funny to me. It's not sinful that Jesus says this, but it does sound to my sinful ears a little bit snarky. It's not because it's Jesus. But he's saying, you go up to the feast. You go, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. But... Um, This follows this pattern that we've seen elsewhere in John, and I talked about this a little bit when I was teaching on John chapter 2 in the wedding at Cana, where we see Mary, and you'll remember this, we see Mary coming to Jesus, suggesting something, Jesus very clearly seeming to say, no, that's not what I'm going to do. And then he just goes ahead and does it anyway. Um, And this is another pattern, and it's with his family members again. He said they are telling him what to do, and he's saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And then he does it. So what is going on here? Well, um, first of all, Jesus talks about his time. And the timing is very important in Jesus' ministry. If people are trying to kill him because of what he's done, and we've already seen from chapter 5 that that's the case, and we see it throughout the rest of Scripture too, um, Jesus' timing is very important. I think that at this point in his ministry, from the very beginning, he knows that his ministry will not just involve teaching with authority and miraculous deeds and signs that point to his identity, but he knows I do believe he knows the way his life will end. I do believe he knows that all of this ministry and this work that he's doing will culminate in his rejection by his own people, his betrayal, his trial, and his shameful death on a cross. I think he knows that. And yet he knows that the timing, he knows that because it is what he is supposed to do, he knows that because it's what he's called to do, he knows that it's in the, in the Father's will, and he's joining his will with the Father's will. He's saying yes, willingly, joyfully even, 
to this destiny of his. Um, But he knows that the timing is important. And the time has not yet come. So he's saying to them, actually, they're saying, show yourself so that people will believe in you. But he knows better. He's saying, well, I can't do that publicly because then they'll try to kill me right there. It's not time for me to die yet. The word for time here is kairos. Kairos, there are two Greek words for time, kairos and chronos. Chronos is where we get the word chronology, and it has to do with sequential time. You know, on a timeline, I love timelines. You know, there are some, some Bibles have them in the back of them, and you can look at, you know, the, the different components. It, it helps put thing, it, it puts things in perspective, you know, being able to see what happens sequentially throughout history. And um, so that's chronological time. That's chronos. Um, that timeline with the arrow going in one direction, the other arrow going the other, in the opposite direction. Uh, Kairos is very different. Kairos is the appointed time, or um, the ver- it's very specifically the right time. And within the context of faith, it's God's timing. How many times have we desired or prayed for something good to happen in our time? And we are continually reminded that it's not, we don't get to say the timing of the things in our life. And what a struggle for some of us that we would rather have things on our timeline, yet we have to trust that God's timing is truly the best time, the, um, the appointed time, the kairos, the right time, God's timing. So Jesus is saying, no, it's not God's timing. It's not my time to die It's not the right time for me to die. He uses another word in other places in John, and we won't go and look at those, but Jesus talks about his hour. It's the same idea. It's the hour, and with him it's so clear that the hour that he's talking about is the hour of his glorification, his raising up. And when he means glorification in John, that means the hour of his death, the hour when he is lifted up high over all the earth, hanging on a cross. That is the hour of Jesus' glorification. And you'll see, if you were to go home and look at these different verses, in John chapter 2 and John chapter 7, he's saying, it's not the hour, it's not the right time yet. And then you see that when it is the right time, Jesus starts to say, the hour is upon us. Now is the time. The hour is now. Because he knows he is about to die. So when he says in um, 17 verse 1, He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He knows that he'll leave that upper room where he says those words, and he'll be betrayed and handed over. He'll be tried and rejected, and he will suffer and die. He knows that the hour has come at that point. So in chapter 7, it's not the right time. It's not the right time for him to go and die. And that's why he still goes. He goes, but he goes in a different way than what his brothers suggested. He cannot be controlled by them. They're saying that he should go in their way with them and do the things that they think he should do so that everybody would recognize that he's the Messiah. Can you just hear that tone of like, Big, they're not big brothers, they're little brothers, but still. You should just go and, you know, everybody will know if you just listen to us, we're giving you good advice. And Jesus will not be controlled by human designs. He, he is he's not to be deterred. And so he rebuffs them, my time has not come. And then 
he goes. We see in the next verse, right? (laughs) In verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So he didn't follow that caravan train with his entire village. He didn't follow all of his extended family and a huge mass of disciples up to Jerusalem. He went on his own and he went privately. And he's right because while, you know, while he's not there, people are looking for him, right? They're muttering. People are looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was, um, and they're muttering. Again, the muttering, do you remember from chapter 6 how much muttering and grumbling there was? Remember, we talked about the grumbling of the people. They're grumbling for more bread in chapter 6 and saying, why can't you give us more bread? We're hungry. Fill our needs. We know that you have the ability to create a miraculous bread, so give us more of this bread. And when when Jesus doesn't capitulate to their um, materialism, he just says, he just, they start to grumble and complain against him. And the word used is meant to hearken back to the grumbling of the people of Israel in the desert, in the wilderness. Remember the crowd going grumble, grumble, grumble under their breath. Um, The murmuring in the crowd, it's complaining against God's miraculous provision, complaining that God cannot be controlled in the way that we would want him to do the things that we would want him to do. They're um, murmuring. The crowd is murmuring again against Jesus. But we see that the murmuring, the content of the murmuring, has two different um, positions. Some say he's a good man, and others say, no, he is leading the people astray. That word for leading the people astray is deceiving. Um, He's deceiving the people. He's speaking falsely. And that... um, that false speaking, if we were to put, leave one hand in John and flip back to Deuteronomy. This, I, I hate putting these two dots together, but it's just true. When you look at scripture, when you look back at Deuteronomy 13, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, signs sound familiar, don't they? And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. And then it even goes on to say, you shall stone him. This injunction against false prophecy, I believe that the Jewish leaders in pursuing Jesus and trying to kill him... um, I believe that they believe that they're obeying their law because they don't believe that Jesus is truly who he says he is. And when he makes claims that put him on an equal level with God, then they see him as being guilty of blasphemy and leading people into worshiping himself instead of God. And what is so strange about that is that they understood what he was saying. They understood that he was making a claim to divinity. And if he were not truly speaking, then their, their actions were just. It all falls down to whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. So we have this, that those who believe in him truly believe that he is the Son of God, that he is who he says he is. And so we as Christians who believe in him, we worship him. And they were afraid that if people did believe that he was saying 
speaking, um, they didn't believe that he was speaking the truth and they believed that people would worship him. And so they, they felt like they needed to um, stamp him out so that people wouldn't be misled and follow him. Yeah. I feel for him. I know. <laughs> I know. Is there any provision in the prophecy that, that they knew that this is how God, that God might man- come as himself? I mean, yeah, there are there are some things that talk about um, God coming. Um, it's called a theophany. God appearing in their midst. God coming into their midst. But the thing was, they never, they didn't expect, they didn't expect that with the Messiah. They expected the, that the Messiah would be a man like them, just a man, no more than a man, and a man who would liberate them from Roman oppression and would re, re, um, allow the, the people of Israel as a nation to be reestablished in the Holy Land so that they would, have, they would be fruitful and multiply, that they'd be able to return to the heyday of their existence, which was under David and Solomon, when, um, when they had other nations bringing tribute to them, when they had this brief moment of military success that lasted for a little bit of time, um, that was what they were hoping for. Um, and they believed that that would be God's sign, a sign of God's good pleasure over them, but they didn't, some of that, some did, some did, because so many of those early, you know, of those so many of Jesus' early disciples, in fact, all of the earliest ones are Jews, right? Um, but, um, but many did not believe. Yeah, I, it had to have been so difficult for him. And it also, for me, when I think about it, I feel for the people who don't believe in Jesus. Because I think, how can you be so blind? And it's so tragic to see these Jewish leaders rejecting their own Messiah, rejecting God in their midst, God fulfilling his promise to them, that he would come to them, that they would be in relationship and fellowship with him, that he would make a way through forgiveness of sins from Je- through Jesus Christ. And they're saying, they're distinctly saying no to that because they don't believe and they don't recognize what God's doing in Jesus. I find that tragic too. It's like they're shooting themselves in their own foot. And you see that in John more and more. If we ever get to the passion narrative, you know, in chapters 18 and 19, you see it comes to a tragic climax where they are specifically rejecting not just Jesus, but the God who sent him, God the Father, who sent a Savior for us like this. Um, and, it's, and yet you see them also tragically um, striving to obey their own law. By killing Jesus. It's really intense. I I don't know any other word. Any other questions about that? Thank you, Liz. Your people today? Yep, absolutely. I mean, it just goes on through the ages. It's so true. And And you see it. This question of, oh, he's a good man. Well, believing Jesus is a good man is not enough, as we all know. Um, But there's that dichotomy of reception of Jesus. When being confronted by Jesus, essentially when coming to see Jesus for who he is, even even for those who see him and hear the gospel and hear how wonderful he is, hear that he is God um, the Son, hear this and even are 
you know, it's brought to their attention. Even for people like that, there, there's rejection of Jesus. Some people will reject Jesus, and it's very sobering. We talked about this little, a little bit last week when we talked about election. So this might be a good two minutes to stump the chump about election. Did you have any other questions about election? We talked about it last week. Um, because remember, I had that, um, I talked about how um, in verse 64 from chapter 6, Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Remember? Um, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Unless the Father chooses him. Some will believe and some will not believe. And so this idea of being chosen for belief, chosen to believe in Jesus, um, and that being a very, even, even the ability to believe in Jesus is a gift from God. And that is true, and Scripture attests to that. And, um, and yet this concept of being chosen by God, the people of Israel were chosen by God to show forth his glory in all the world. And, um, and when, you, when you look at it, Jesus is the chosen son. He is the chosen one. He is the culmination of the entire identity of the people of Israel. He is the true Israel. And so all those who believe in him are chosen just like he is. And we're chosen to believe in him by God. There's that sense of it being completely God's grace and mercy that even allows us to believe in him. And nothing inherent in ourselves. No inner goodness that allows us to receive the good news. Um, and that's a hard thing to look at. It's a mystery. And we don't always talk about it theologically as though it is a mystery, but it is a mystery. But one thing that it's dependent upon is God's own sovereignty and omniscience. And we see this in what Jesus was saying, that he knew beforehand who would come to him because he knows the end from the very beginning. Because he knows all of that chronos, Remember that timeline? He sees it all, all at once. God does. And so he knows who will believe and who will not believe in Jesus. That's a big topic to introduce in about two minutes, and I did it last week too. So um, any, anything that doesn't make sense to you about that? It's not a problem if, it, if, if, if you're confused by it because it is a mystery. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, we'll just we'll just finish up with um, with that in mind. Looking at those who believe and those who do not believe, um, Jesus says this of his brothers. Well, John says of Jesus's brothers, even his brothers, not even his brothers believed in him. How discouraging that must have been for Jesus. It's a little confusing here because they believe that he can do these miracles. They're saying, "Go do your miracles in Judea." Go do them in Jerusalem. So they believe somehow, they believe that he can do the miracles. They might even believe that he is the Messiah because the Messiah would be known. They believed throughout the first century, they believed that they would know the Messiah by the miracles that he did. That that would be their sign that he was the Messiah. That he would do miracles even greater than Moses. Um, So they might have even believed that he was the Messiah. But John still says that not even his brothers believed in him. And I think that that is so clearly that they did not believe that Jesus would do what he would do when his time came. 
They didn't have an idea of what the, what the real purpose of the Messiah was. They didn't know um, what we know now, which is that um, Jesus came not to teach, not just to teach um, with authority and to teach in such a way that it gave such insight into the law. Um, Jesus came not to just to teach. Jesus came not just to heal and to show his um, sovereignty over all creation by saving his disciples from the storm. Remember in chapter 6 when he walks on water and stills the wind, calms the storm? He came not just to preach with authority and teach with authority. He came not just to um, show these miraculous deeds, but he came to die and to die for those who could not save themselves to die for every one of us who um, could find no forgiveness of sins apart from him. We have no power in and of ourselves to save ourselves. And Jesus talks about the world in John, or John talks about the world specifically as being the part of creation, those human beings that reject Jesus and reject this purpose of Jesus and reject Jesus' death as salvific for them. And we see it in... um, We see it in this passage, the world cannot hate you, but the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. As sinful human beings, we don't like to know our own faults, do we? And Jesus in his righteousness um, is like a bright and shining light um, by which we pale in comparison, almost like one of those You know the kind of lighting I'm talking about when you walk into a bathroom and you think, oh no. (laughs) And then you prefer to have the better lighting. I was like, the better lighting. Or sometimes when it's a really good light, and I'm at this stage in my life, my mother says middle age is when you have zits and wrinkles. (laughs) Isn't Isn't that rich? Well... Well, I will say I have both. So I'm, I never thought middle age was in your 30s, but I guess it is. Um, and so there are some mirrors, or some mirrors and some lights that are just so good. And these are the, this is not bad lighting. It's the good lighting that just shows, you know, I can see every pore and I think, oh gosh, I can't look in that mirror because I'll see all of my imperfections. What is like the righteousness of Jesus? He's like a bright and shining light that shows us every clogged pore um, in our heart, every every imperfection, every failing, every um, sin. And yet, in that bright and shining light, there is a grace too, in that seeing that, acknowledging it, and admitting it and confessing it to God through faith in Jesus Christ, when we believe in him, um, then we are able to, we're able to look in the mirror without turning off the light or without, um, without tearing up our faces, trying to get, get every, every pore unclogged. Um, we're able to know that God receives us and loves us even as we are with all those clogged pores and all, all of the inner um, failings that um, we know about and um, he knows about. And he loves us and receives us because of Jesus Christ. So all of this um, goes back, yes, the world hates Jesus. Yes, those who don't believe in Jesus reject him tragically. And um, we are prone to reject him because of that bright and shining light. And yet, John says in John 3.16, to go back to that quintessential verse, 
that God so loved the world, God so loved even that part of us that is inclined to reject him. God so loves even those people who say no to Jesus, um, like in that crowd that are saying, no, he's leading people astray, or the people that we know around us who say, no, thanks, I'm all set. No, I really don't want you to talk to me about Jesus. No, I'm, I'm all good, thanks. Uh, you know, it's just the desperate that really need to believe in Jesus. That's true. It is the desperate that need to believe in Jesus. We're all desperate if we're able to acknowledge it. Um, and so God so loves even that part of us, even the people that, rejects him, that reject him, that he gives his son for all of us, um, for every single one of us. And he gives his son specifically for that part within us that says, um, says at times to God, no, thank you, I'm all set. I can take care of it myself. Um, and so that um, he gives his son even for those who reject him, um, even though some, knowing that some will not believe in him, he gives Jesus so that whoever does receive him, whoever does believe in him, will have eternal life. So let's pray. Oh, we thank you, Father, that you look at us and you see us in all of our imperfection, all of our failings, all of our sins, um, all of those things that, that even others in our life might not know about, even the things that we're not even aware of yet. Um, you see them and you know them, and you love us in spite of them because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so I ask and pray that you would continue to give us courage to look in that mirror and to turn everything that we see in that mirror over to you. Um, and we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for um, his life, yes, and his words, yes, and his deeds, yes. But above all else, we thank you for his sacrificial and atoning death for us and for those imperfections and those failings and those sins that we know that we see when we look at ourselves in his bright light, in the bright light of his righteousness. And so again, we turn to you and we in faith and we say, yes, let Jesus be for me. Let his death be for me. Uh, and so we ask that you would do this um, through your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.